0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Duncan McCargo. I'm director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and a professor of political science here at the University of Copenhagen. It's my great privilege today to be joined by Astrid Nielsen, who is an associate professor at the Center for Eastern Southeast Asian Studies at Lund University. Uh, She's a very prominent scholar of Cambodia and Cambodian politics, and she's been doing a lot of really interesting work. So it's great to have a chance to see you again, Astrid.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, Duncan. Thanks very much.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're just across the sound. If I stood on a ladder on the roof, I could probably almost see your house with a I'm strong sure. pair of binoculars. And yet, it's been very difficult for us to go back and forth over the past year or so between southern Sweden and Copenhagen. So, we're having to find other ways to catch up on what work you've been doing and all the interesting things that have been going on. So, I saw a really great article in the journal Critical Asian Studies that I've been involved with. I'm a member of the editorial board. And I thought, wow, I really have to talk to Astrid about this because she's got a very, very interesting perspective. But maybe you could start off by giving us a bit of background about how you started working on the politics of Cambodia.
1: Right. So thank you very much for your interest in this. I guess it's a very personal question, but I won't uh, shy away from it and I won't mm-hmm. tell a lie, even though perhaps I should. But really, my starting point in my work is my uh, interest in Cambodia so it's not that I identified Cambodia as a sort of suitable testing ground for some particular political science theory, but really it's my interest in Cambodia that it all started with. And then in terms of chronology here, it was really at the tender age of 17, as a teenager living in Sweden, that um, all of a sudden I had this urge to go to Cambodia. Uh, came out of nowhere. As one does. Right. And so I did, right? So yes. a few weeks later, I was off with a friend. And I remember this sense of a very strong emotional affinity that sort of set the tone for everything that was about to come. So after that, I went to London, I went to SOAS, I wanted to study Khmer. And being at SOAS then enabled me to combine my uh, longstanding interest in politics, was already there, uh, with the study of Cambodia. So uh, politics for me is really the most interesting prism for making sense of what's going on in a society. It's really, if we we understand this as a study of power, it's really an excellent vantage point for really unpicking what's going on in a society, but it also has this sort of existentialist dimension to it, the way I see it. And it really opens up for these conversations and these exchanges that are really deeply personal And you talk with people about things that matter to the right. And I think that's really a luxury, being able to approach people to talk about things Uh, that matter to them and in Cambodia even though politics is an is a taboo topic if framed as such people are constantly discussing issues that are inherently political and they have plenty of analysis to offer so I think it's really those conversations and those exchanges that have uh, motivated me and keep motivating me to do this research on Cambodia and Cambodian politics.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels between our two stories because I'm also a political scientist who really starts by being fascinated by Thailand and Southeast Asia and then moves into studying things in a broader way. And also, you know, like you, I went to Thailand at a fairly tender age, had an immediate emotional connection with the place, despite the fact that in some ways it's not a place I ought to be at all. It's far too hot, not a place where I can think straight Yes, and I also ended up at SOAS and then doing a PhD on, on, on Thai politics. So, yes, I think we've, we've been leading parallel lives in that's slightly different decades here.
1: So well, Duncan. Sorry. That's why we understand each other so well.
0: As we understand each other so well. And that's why when I see one of your articles, I think, oh, right, if I was working on Cambodia, this is the kind of article I would like to, to have written. Right. So I'd say... For perhaps for the reasons we've just been discussing, your approach to the field is a bit different from the one used by a lot of other scholars, even scholars of Cambodian politics. Could you explain how it is that you go about doing your research?
1: Right. So I'm I'm purely driven by interest. I'm purely driven by intellectual pleasure. And I don't mean to suggest that others are not, but really, I have not straight-jacketed myself very much, uh, but I have written rather Disparate issues that tickle my fancy. So I'm, I'm not really driven by a particular theoretical agenda or looking at uh, similar issues over time. Uh, but really, I, I think I tend to delve into issues that I think are vital for understanding Cambodia's political tra- trajectory at a particular moment in time, really. So when I started doing my PhD research, which is when I first met you, I guess, I was sort of consumed yeah, by this desire to really get into the heads of this, these prominent political figures and actors that had shaped uh, Cambodia's politics from the introduction of uh, multi-party elections in the early 90s up until that point. And that ended up being a book, Cambodia's Second Kingdom, that sort of mixes an analysis of discourses and narratives with uh, an analysis also of deeply held beliefs and how all of that has played out in what we can say Cambodia's experiment, right, with multi-party democratic frameworks. There is there is that sort of actor versus structure uh, aspect to the analysis. And so some read that as a kind of discourse analysis, and that's not how it was intended, really. So I was really interested in what, pe- what political figures say, but also what they really think without, of course, any hope or ambition to establishing a clear line between But I do think that Shadowland is very interesting, and I think that's something that I tend to dwell on uh, a lot. Uh, And that work took a longer time perspective, so it tried to cover the period from 1993 up to 2013. And since then, for me, it has really been all about trying to up with the relatively fast-paced changes that Cambodia has been uh, going through. So fast-paced, I guess, at least for academics. Right. So most recently, since uh, since this shift to a deeper form of authoritarianism over 2017 and 18, my work has been about trying to to make sense of this shift. So I have worked on media. So this article that you just mentioned, I worked on autocratic legitimizations. I worked on the politics of youth organizations. And together with Neil Lowlin, I have co-edited a special issue on this shift that I hope will come out later this year. But I think perhaps that there is some sort of fundamental continuity in my research in that interest in the tension between this verifiable political discourse and these unverifiable political beliefs and ideas. And then bringing that dimension to the my interpretation of that dimension to the analysis and of these shifting phases of Cambodia's relationship with competitive and then hegemonic authoritarianism. Perhaps not something that always uh, comes out in the final written product, but it's always there in the in the research process.
0: Right. I mean, I I feel again rather like me. There's something sort of humanistic in your approach exactly. to the study of politics, and that you have this fascination with culture and language, and you're very very immersed in. This some of the specificities. Of, well, for me, the most striking thing about Southeast Asia is often in it's, it's in nuance, it's in quirkiness, it's in strange things that are very difficult to get our heads around. But if we can get inside the, the inner worlds of the people who have these kinds of ideas and formulations, then we're really getting much, much closer to a deep understanding of what's happening. It seems to me that that's Maybe I'm, I'm caricaturing or misrepresenting your your project, but I do feel an affinity with the way in which you seem to be trying to work, which has many parallels with the way I've been trying to work, particularly yes, on
1: time. I agree entirely, yeah.
0: Because a lot of social scientists are trying to schematize things and to make things make sense. And I think both you and I have the idea that actually we have to embrace the fact that things don't exactly, quote unquote, make sense in a conventional way. So this brings us to this very interesting article we've already mentioned, the Critical Asian Studies article that came out recently, Fresh News, Innovative News, Popularizing Cambodia's Authoritarian Turn. And that's really about this Cambodian online news site, Fresh News. Can you tell us a bit about what Fresh News is to begin with, so we can have some context to understand the, the
1: discussion? Sure. So uh, Fresh News, is it's a news platform that was launched in 2014 So it started out as a smartphone application, the first smartphone application right, to deliver Khmer language news. Mm. That was an innovation. And Fresh News also had a Facebook page since the very beginning. And since then, it's expanded. So it now also operates its own television channel, YouTube channel, radio channel. When I interviewed the founder in 2019, through all of these different channels, Fresh News had a total audience of 4 million. So that's very wide reach in a population of 16 million. Right? So what is the interest of this site? So as I mentioned, in uh, over 2017 and 2018, Cambodia shifted to this sort of deeper form of authoritarianism, we can say. So it shifted from a system of competitive authoritarianism, where electoral competition is real, but it's unfair, to hegemonic authoritarianism. Where there's no real competition, electoral competition to speak of. So in two thousand and seventeen, the Cambodian Supreme Court it dissolved the main opposition party, the CNRP, and then in two thousand eighteen, in national elections, the government party, the CPP, the Cambodian People's Party, then proceeded to win or to claim uh, one hundred all one hundred and twenty five seats in parliament. So Fresh News was very active, very involved, very visible over this mm. time period, over this shift. So. Most obviously, when the opposition leader, so the uh, leader at the time of the CNRP, Khun Sokha, was arrested in September 2017, British news were there. Right? And they broadcasted the arrest live. So they knew beforehand, obviously, that the arrest was about to take place. And so, coincidence, some
0: inside information. They had
1: some information there. <laughs> yes, right? Right. And on the same day, the Cambodia Daily, which was this very important independent newspaper came out with this last issue before it was it had the close of being handed this very hefty tax bill, right? So there were these huge changes in, in the media landscape in connection with the shift. And it just it seemed to me that fresh news it was more than just a pro-government website, but it really seemed to be implicated in the shift in more profound ways. So this article that I wrote, came out of critical Asian studies. The intention was to try to make sense of fresh news role then in Cambodia's transition to hegemonic authoritarianism, And also to place that in the global context of rising authoritarianism to try to understand how the new media logics of digital journalism, how they were weaponized to support this transition to hegemonic authoritarianism in Cambodia and also how those particular tactics might perhaps inform what we know about this global rise of authoritarianism. Going over fresh news stories and coverage, particularly over this time period of the transition, I found that fresh news was really Complicit, let's say, in producing this shift, both in a legal sense but also in a discursive sense. So, in the article, I identify sort of three main ways. So, firstly, by reorienting notions of democracy. So, this included spreading this pro government narrative in which the political opposition is guilty of treason, which then eroded both their democratic and nationalist credentials, but also by spreading the idea that being a strong man is a sort of legitimate form of leadership and being the first news outlet to actually refer to the prime minister as a strong man, a sort of legitimate title. But secondly, also the fresh news reporting being the basis for legal action, really. So you have these unsupported internet rumors and things that pop up on anonymous Facebook pages that are then republished and reproduced by fresh news. Right. And from there... Right. They can much much more easily make the jump to the sort of legal sphere and then become legal and juridical uh, evidence. And then thirdly also in terms of spreading this pro-government discourse of fake news, right. uh, according to which it's the political opposition, but also independent media that are actually spreading fake news uh, in Cambodia, which really invalidates any sort of critical positioning and also critical news reporting.
0: <sighs> Right. Yes. I must confess I have a framed copy of the final issue of Cambodia Daily with its now legendary headline, Dissent into Outright Dictatorship on the on the front page.
1: I wish I had that. They really yes, didn't
0: I, I got someone to send it to me. I, I the, the day yeah. it came out, I emailed all my students in Cambodia. I said, can one of you please find it yes. and send it to me? And one of them did. So I'm really, really happy. But I can auction that one day. But yes, it's indicative of that turn, that sort of 2017-18 turn while culminating in a bizarre election where the opposition has essentially been banned and the ruling party romps home to an astounding victory that was all too predictable. So a lot is going on as fresh news emerges, as, as you say. Can you give us an example of a story that broke on fresh news that illustrates the way that the site operates?
1: Right. So I think what's interesting here is that it's typically not a single story operating in isolation that's significant. Yes. But that there's this whole ecosystem of uh, online actors, so anonymous Facebook accounts, but also the social media activity of government officials, for example, and all of that forms an ecosystem together with fresh news that fresh news operates within. Uh, So to give an example, if you go back to the arrest of Kum Sukha, the accusations linking Sokha to this U.S. conspiracy to topple the government that he was accused of, they were originally posted to this anonymous Facebook account called Mm Khmai. And then... Fresh News republished them over the week leading up to his arrest. Uh, When he was arrested then, the prime minister cited these claims of a U.S.-backed conspiracy that had been reproduced, that had been popularized by Fresh News as the reason. And there was also this video uh, from 2013 in which Komsoka says that he has received some support or some backing from the U.S., which then resurfaced on Fresh News just merely hours before his arrest. And that video then turned into a key piece of evidence in the lawsuit and that was filed by the Minister of Interior against his party, the CNRP, just a month later in October. And it was cited by the Supreme Court when the CNRP was dissolved in November. I have more examples to give if you want.
0: Right, but that's a really good one. because. I think this is the difficulty. I mean, I've done a lot of work on media in the past, and there's this enormous literature about censorship and this idea that in authoritarian regimes or hybrid regimes or whatever on earth we're supposed to call regimes like those in countries like Thailand and Cambodia these days, most of the threats to an open information order are supposed to come from the state. But actually what we're finding, certainly in this Cambodian case, it's not exactly the state. How does Cambodia illustrate the crossover between what is the regime and what constitutes private sector interests that are somehow very closely aligned with the objectives and goals and preferences of the regime.
1: Right. So what I think is is very interesting here is also how neither the government nor Fresh News really claim that Fresh News is a sort of independent and private uh-huh. There was initial support that came from a secretary of state as the minister of interior and also from a a CPP-affiliated tycoon. And so this close relationship between the government and privately owned a privately owned media outlet here is really acknowledged by both sides. And there are plenty of quotes mm-hmm. in different media to illustrate this. So, for example, the government spokesman, Paisipan, he has referred to Fresh News as a space for the government to share the news. And the CEO of Fresh News, he has also said that if the prime minister wants to spread news, and he comes to me, so it right. <laughs> <it's> somewhat, <laughs> it appears somewhat puzzling. You would think that either the government would seek to conceal these links with fresh right. teeth, or that perhaps they would want to turn it into this sort of state-owned platform if they're already open with it, right? But my interpretation—so this is obviously something that you know one can does a lot of one can do a lot of thinking about—and I I did right. come. My interpretation so far is that this assertiveness of both fresh news and the government sides over these close ties could be understood as a way of normalizing this undeniable influence that the government exercises over fresh news. And one VOA journalist that I interviewed, he said that if I was CEO of fresh news, I would say that we are the bridge that links the state and the people. And I think yes. I mean, that's really how fresh news carries itself. And then on the other hand, then reasons for maintaining fresh news as a private enterprise we can see that the market driven media industry can perhaps gain a certain more effectively by delivering more convincing, more sophisticated messages compared to the, the state owned media. And we've seen that in China, for example, that argument has been made. And in Cambodia, the state owned media is widely unpopular. If you look at Agence Cambodia Press or the TVK, it really has. You know, zero appeal,
0: I guess. Right. Yes. right.
1: So that there might be that expectation that being a private enterprise, it can have more popular trust and get more interest. Uh, but to understand this crossover, I guess there are also some sort of theoretical reflections to be made here. Right. Yeah. And this is also, this crossover, as you say, this is also one of the reasons that I found uh, Molly's Clauses' recent work on the third time some particularly helpful. So she says, um, in a framework that I used throughout the article, that to understand what authoritarianism is in the contemporary world, we should focus on the sabotage of accountability rather than uh-huh. functions, And that we, also that we should assess these political institutions within, below and beyond the state. So that really yes. opens up looking at government right. uh, arrangements right. as public-private um, partnerships. And so this, I think, is very fitting for making sense yes, of fresh meat right. from the sense of sabotaging accountability from what I refer to in the article as the elusive distance from the states.
0: Yes. So it's almost like sabotaging accountability becomes a major project here. And, and right. the, but yes, not only are they complicit but they're actually so proud of their complicity that they're flaunting it. And this is the irony. And yet, if you ask ordinary Cambodians about government TV channels and things, they have no time for them. But isn't fresh news incredibly popular?
1: I mean, it's something that I didn't really highlight in the article, that the target group of fresh news, it's really civil servants, it's NGO yes. workers, and so on. Right. And the CEO, when I interviewed him, he insisted it's not for women. It's strictly for wow. women. yes.
0: Really? It's that very was, gendered.
1: That was the point that hit home. But, but I think that speaks to how freshness is also sort of providing it's providing information to these categories of people because it has access to this exclusive information coming out of the state. Right. So it's, it has information that's important to these particular categories. And I think that also is, as part of that, freshness is, it's not only about convincing people, but it's also about providing a narrative that I think civil servants and government officials can rely on. So there's something here in terms of what question seeks to do. It seeks to legitimize, but it also seeks to establish sort of official narratives that, believe it or not, you may repeat as a government official. I think there is something there to explore that I didn't really delve into in the article, actually.
0: So its core audience is intended to be... Essentially, male power holders are sort of in the government camp, and it gives them a legitimating narrative to support them in their work and in the kind of positions that they take.
1: Right, and I think they've also this is something that I dwelled on in my interview than with the CEO and with some another person working at Fresh News, and that they feel very confident that they have reached the core target groups. But there is also an ambition on the was sent in 2019 to expand further and to go into the countryside. And I think that when the, that target group is expanded, then yes. of course, the messages and the purposes would be adjusted, so it might be more about legitimizing and less about providing narratives. But that's the original key ambition of Fresh News, really, to interact with these constituencies.
0: But it's all about, in a way, framing. People are in the process of trying to adjust their way of understanding what's going on in Cambodia, because you went from a two-party system where, although one party was very much more dominant, there was intense contestation and political dissent for a long period of time. And now the dissent is largely suppressed and people somehow have to come to terms with this much more overt monopolization of power by the CPP and its allies. So the launch of a new platform like Fresh News is part of an attempt to reframe public discourse and public space on some level. Or am I going too I far? Or is I is that the...
1: say that. I mean, this, right. this change has happened fairly rapidly, right? It's difficult right. to process and even know how they should be represented. Uh, So I think this helped in in that sense and also helped to establish a very straightforward communication channel between the state and its employees, its civil servants, and strengthening that relationship in a way.
0: Right. And yet the irony is, even if the main target of fresh news is people who work for the government, the government sort of outsources the role of communicating with its own employees or its own staff to a third party yes, uh, through this mechanism of complicity and this sense of creating a feeling of, I'm an insider because I got it from fresh news and therefore it has come straight from the source. And I can confidently assume that I can work on the basis that whether true or not, this is the rationale that I'm supposed to use in justifying my actions. And this obviously brings up other lenses. You've alluded to, to one of them already. People looking at this from the outside would say, well, fresh news seems to be all about fake news. It seems to be all about disinformation. Are these terms that are very much being bandied about in literature about politics and communication and media these days helpful ways of understanding fresh news? Is it fake news and is it disinformation?
1: I don't think that it's primarily fake news or disinformation, no. Uh, I mean, there is this aspect of taking this unsupported rumors and leaks off the internet and then republishing them. So I guess that has some sort of family resemblance with disinformation, but it might not be disinformation as such. It's simply about sharing in a way. Mm -hmm. So I think that the genius of fresh news, as it were, is really the opposite of spreading fake news and disinformation. So it's really about holding this exclusive access to privileged information coming from the state, being the first outlet to get it out. And most pieces are actually very brief and concise and just fact-filled and with yeah. no analysis at all. And so this is why Fresh News has become necessary reading for these civil servants, for these NGO workers and so on. So typically they would download the app and then you would get notifications throughout the day as soon as something comes out. And so you, the attention is always is kept, right? And right. even if you like the face, uh, the Facebook page, then you keep getting notifications yes. throughout the day. Uh, and so this is also why other journalists are really sort of made to run after, let's say, the freshness story. Right. Right. So that was something also that came out when I interviewed some of the independent journalists, and they said that now they're. They have to monitor fresh news reporting throughout the day to see what is happening. And then they might chase the same story. They can identify the stories in that way. And then they try to cover the same stories. And they, of course, do it differently. They try to do it taking a sort of critical perspective, taking a different angle, starting their own account. Uh, But nonetheless, this means that fresh news reporting has really set the national news agenda. And I think that is really significant.
0: Right. Now, that is a a whole fascinating process, because we're accustomed to the idea of a 24-hour news cycle, which I guess really came in with the, the first Gulf War and CNN and the idea of rolling TV news. But this... It's almost like they're deliberately drip-feeding information throughout the day. It's not literally as things are happening. Presumably, they have a fairly good idea what they're going to do sometime in advance, but they want to keep everybody hooked on the app. So they're delivering these snippets of information at intervals throughout the day in order to hook the readers and make people highly dependent on these drip feeds of information that are coming through from the app and it's it's rather orchestrated it's it's 24-hour news cycle is an idea of breaking news where things are actually happening and you go live to the scene but this seems much more calculating than that as though the government is going to say okay today we've got 20 things that we want to get out and we're going to drop them out at half hour intervals using uh, mechanisms like fresh news so that people just have to be at the edge of their seats wondering when they're going to hear about this and, and so forth is it something along those lines
1: yeah and i mean uh, that's really media today isn't it it's yes for almost any media and that's also what facebook does to all of us sort of just getting right. their notifications out whenever they want to just to get us back to the app uh but this is something of course and that the uh, the, the government has sort of tapped into this logic right. by using right. news and then having these breaking news coming up throughout the day.
0: Yes, we are accustomed to blaming the media as the messenger or blaming social media companies for doing this. But there's a sense in, in a, a regime like Cambodia's, the political actors have embraced this way of communicating information, breaking it down to these bite-sized chunks and then feeding bits of bread to the duck. If they keep hanging around, sooner or later, another breadcrumb will be hurled their way, in this case, through their phone. And have you seen evidence that these civil servants and insiders are literally sitting there with bated breath, waiting for the next fresh news announcement to pop up on their phone? Is it just... yeah, I
1: think maybe I'm that civil servant or <laughs> I'm that person. I th- I, you're I you're think now you're one of them, right? Of
0: course. <laughs> yes.
1: A lot of interesting things coming out that I could just not find anywhere else. Right. I'm rather hooked to the fresh news, uh, news people right. too, and I think one sort of has to be now if one wants to understand yes. what's going on in Cambodia. There's not really any good alternatives.
0: So it's turning everybody into into fresh yeah. news junkies. Yes, that's cool. um, yeah. even even. Uh... Very critical and detached international scholars such as yourself are waiting for the the latest snippets to pop up. So the argument that you're making in the article seems, I know you're primarily focused on Cambodia for much of your research, but this obviously has resonance that goes way beyond Cambodia. Do you have any ideas about taking some of the arguments that you're making in other directions, either for Cambodia or in a, a broader, more comparative context?
1: Yeah, so uh, there is, of course, there's a lot of research interest in the digital strategies of authoritarian states uh, more generally, uh, but this research really seems to generally overlook digital news with the exception of a small body of research that I could find on on China. But in general, there's a lot of attention on social media, on digital activism, issues of censorship, as you mentioned previously. So in general, I think there's definitely there's room for more research on, on how digital news, online news, fits into this whole uh, scene, right, in terms of thinking about digital strategies of authoritarian states here. Yeah. So in general, definitely regionally in Southeast Asia. And so one research track that I think perhaps follows from this analysis and which I find fascinating is about these new... Ecosystem, sorry to use that word again, but it's quite useful. So emerging in Southeast Asia, these webs of media professionals, PR experts, and so on, and their relation to and their impact on electoral politics. So there has been some very interesting work coming out in other Southeast Asian countries, particularly, I guess, the Philippines and Indonesia. right. Uh, But this phenomenon is not yet yet, uh, studied, it's not yet well understood uh, when it comes to Cambodia, and I think this is really interesting. Right. Why is it so interesting? Because it involves a new set of actors, people that, yes. as political scientists, we're not used to, to talking to them at all. So these right. media executives or so Facebook representatives and right. peer guys and uh, campaign strategists and so on. So they're inserting this whole new set of logics into the political scene, but they're largely hidden from our view. We don't know them. We may have been right. interviewing the same people Uh, over the years right so they're largely off the radar I think in the study of Cambodian politics I think this is something that someone should pursue I'm not sure it will be me but I do hope that someone will.
0: Right now these are really interesting points I've just written a report which I haven't yet turned into an academic or published output on online media in Thailand because as you say media scholars are they used to be obsessed with newspapers which i studied a lot at one time uh, mainstream television channels and then they jumped from that to social media but what they don't seem to have grasped it certainly in the Thai context and the Cambodian context, and I think elsewhere in Southeast Asia, is there's a rise of online media platforms, which are not, they're not social media themselves. A lot of what they generate is then reposted on social media, which is a, a source of confusion. Uh, but they're not traditional media either. You had things like massive protests in Thailand last year. All the interesting coverage was coming from a handful of small online media channels that were disrupting mainstream narratives. And nobody could really get their heads around it. So I think this is part of a larger problem. So I think a lot of these trends are likely to have a much, much larger impact on people who don't yet see them coming uh, down the tracks at them. I don't know if you would agree with that.
1: Right. So there might be some prophetic elements to this article, to your suggestion.
0: Right. Yeah, I do think so. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. It's been great to have you with us. Astrid, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. Really my pleasure. Always always enjoy so much discussing with you, Duncan. So thanks
0: very much. Great. So thank you to all our listeners for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. I'm Duncan Macargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies. Look forward to joining you on the next Nordic Asia podcast. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.